On episode eight of Unmet Need, I interviewed Neil Oberoi, Senior Managing Director of Guggenheim Securities. Neil and his team at Guggenheim are investment bankers and part of some of the largest transactions in healthcare. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. It's great to be back after a brief summer break. Our guest today is Neil Oberoi, Senior Managing Director of Guggenheim Securities Healthcare Banking Team. Neil earned a Bachelor's of Science in Biology from the University of Richmond. He then went on to get a Master's in Public Health at George Washington University, followed by an MBA in Finance at Columbia Business School. Neil spent about 12 years of his career at Bank of America and then went on to Guggenheim Securities, where he works today. Neil, so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for being on Unmet Need. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad we could get this together, and it's great to do it on a weekend, nice and casual. To start off, what we want to do is just introduce yourself a bit to the audience and put it on a timeline for us. What was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? Sure. So I, um, I grew up in Maryland, um, one of two siblings uh, in, a, in a suburb of D.C., about 20 miles north of Washington, D.C., actually about half of my childhood was in a rural town called Germantown, Maryland, and the other half was in a, in a less rural, uh, but not necessarily in D.C., town called Potomac, Maryland. Like most kids, enjoyed playing out in the yard, uh, enjoyed sports. I played lacrosse and, and football starting from fifth grade all through uh, um, high school, and I was always a curious kid. For example, when things were thrown out, uh, if you remember back in the day, we had those large tube televisions when they were thrown out before the, the trash man could come pick them up, I'd like to open them up, take them apart, find out what made them work, and, and in some cases, what didn't work. So pretty typical childhood. What did you find out about those two televisions? What made them break? Not a whole lot. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, just curiosity in general was, was something that you could characterize me then, me now. And it shaped a lot of my educational and career objectives. How so? If you just maybe forward the clock a little bit from my childhood, University of Richmond, I, I studied science, as you said in the introduction, and I found science to be something that was interesting, something that I could learn from, something that challenged me. And I also liked mathematics, also challenging, interesting, and somewhat related, actually, sciences and math. And so... I just found problem solving and those two aspects of my education were related. And, and while I tried to, to solve the problem of the broken television, that one particular example was unsuccessful, I found the challenge of problem solving in my education and ultimately my career to be rewarding. Now, when you were a child and you were doing this problem solving and developing a curiosity towards the science, was that something that was encouraged in your home and your family? I don't know that it was necessarily encouraged, but it by no means was discouraged. My parents were, were just very supportive of whatever it was that I wanted to do, whether it was athletic related, whether it was social related, whether it was education related, and whether it was career related. There was never any pointing me into any one direction, what, again, whether it was something as like sports or something career education related. So it sounds like your parents were supportive of your curiosity. Were you aware what your family's values were? And if so, what were they? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest value of my family was just that, family. My parents were born and raised in India and came over to the U.S. in their 20s. And I was born and raised here, but with similar values that my 
parents brought over from India that they were raised with themselves. The most important things were family, the relationships that I had with them, with my sister, and making sure that at the end of the day, we tried our best to be good people, do the right thing, and make sure that we built the right relationships, uh, even outside of our family, with friends and even professionally. Moving from India to the States at 20, that's quite an adventure. What was the catalyst for your parents coming to the U.S.? So my, my father actually moved here for grad school. He came over with not a whole lot. Uh, I don't think he knew very many people. He was here for a number of years. And, and like a lot of folks back then, uh, he was in an arranged marriage with my mother. So he went back to India to meet and ultimately marry my mother. And then she came over following their wedding. And what was he studying in the graduate program? Economics. I studied uh, agricultural economics in India, came over to study, get his graduate and doctorate in economics, uh, ultimately left during his doctorate program to um, go into his own business. So he left academia to become an entrepreneur. Did you experience that journey? I did. I was present at a lot of his entrepreneurial activities. I would help out at a lot of his entrepreneurial activities on an informal basis. Of course, I was very young. And I got to experience just firsthand a lot of the challenges that that brings to someone without necessarily the stability of a corporate infrastructure or just a normal day-to-day life of someone trying to build a business, start a business, change businesses, learn, pivot along the way. What sort of business did your father start? You know, he started a few different things from real estate to restaurants to ultimately most of his time was spent in art, in carpets, uh, handmade carpets, Middle Eastern, uh, Indian fine artwork. Was there ever a time when your father was trying these different businesses and you were seeing the ups and downs of the startup life? Did you ever think maybe that's what I'll do also or did it seem difficult? I don't think so. I've never really thought about that, but now that I, now that you asked that question, I, mean, I, I always just followed the track, going to college, getting a job after college, ultimately deciding to go to business school, and then from there into my current role. So while it sounds exciting and I get to work with great entrepreneurs in my job, it's not something that I have ventured into yet, but the book is not fully written yet, so you never know. A lot of chapters left. So uh, I want to come back to... You know, you're doing a lot of sciences. Was there any particular science you gravitated towards most? It sounds like you were fairly mechanical. I, I studied, I majored in biology. So I liked biology. I didn't love chemistry as much or physics as much, but I liked science in general. It's a big reason I work in healthcare today or with companies in the healthcare space today. I like the learning how things worked. Again, going back to the whole problem solving aspect of it. And I liked, I liked a lot of what I learned. I didn't really love the practicality of it in terms of working in a lab or doing biological lab work as much as some of just the mechanics and understanding some of the some of the way things just work, uh, healthcare related. How did you get exposed to lacrosse? I mean, I know you're in Maryland, it's sort of the home of the sport. So I, I started a, uh, a new school in, in fifth grade. It was a private school in Potomac, Maryland. And when I showed up for either to take my admissions test or for orientation, there were a couple of students just tossing the ball around on campus. I had never seen it before. I had never heard of it before. In the spring of my fifth grade class year, when it came time to choose a sport, because at the time at my school, you chose a sport each of the three trimesters, I thought about trying out lacrosse. And I quickly gravitated toward it and played not only in the spring seasons, but in other seasons throughout the year as well. And 
I still enjoy today. My daughter has has uh, played uh, organized lacrosse, and I still enjoy today throwing the ball around with her, and even with my nephews who are starting to learn lacrosse. But if you, as you said, in, in Maryland and the East Coast, lacrosse was always very big growing up, and for a long time. University of Maryland hosted the Final Four for the NCAA lacrosse tournament. There's nothing more fun than to see the Final Four at University of Maryland at College Park. Those were good times. When you decided to start studying biology at University of Richmond, what was the shift in your education or the point where you realized that finance would be the route versus, say, medicine? As I mentioned earlier, math and science were the two areas that interested me most. And if there was a way where I could combine my interest in numbers and my interest in the sciences, I thought that could be something interesting to pursue. So coming out of college, a lot of my classmates, University of Richmond at the time, went into accounting at the time. I think it was big six accounting. That wasn't something specifically that interested me, but uh, I found a job at a, at a small consulting firm in the D.C. area where I got to work in the healthcare team there and problem solve for clients. And that particular role was competitive intelligence, market intelligence, strategic consulting. And I worked in a small team, a healthcare focused team within a, not a large firm, but in a, in a larger organization. And I got to match up a couple of my interests, problem solving and healthcare, but the numbers asked aspect of it wasn't necessarily there for me. It wasn't as quantitative as it was qualitative. I learned a lot. Glad I did it. But as I think about all of my interests, there was one aspect that was missing. That was the numerical, technical, quantitative aspect of my interests. So your interest in quantitative modeling, it sounds like at this consulting, your first job, you're doing competitive market insights, but it felt very qualitative and you seem like you're more of a numbers guy is that how it sounds is that right that's right i uh, found a lot of interest in that role particularly working with people i worked with which i think is hugely important in any anything you do the clients we worked for the problems we were asked to help solve and the fact that it was healthcare related if i could have added one more thing one more piece to that puzzle would have been for it to have been a little bit more of a quantitative type role or, but those weren't the questions or the type of mandates clients were coming to us for. I uh, ended up going to, to business school uh, after I think uh, three or three, three and a half, four years of working after undergrad. And I knew I wanted to get more quantitative, but I didn't really have that education background. My major was in science. I, I almost minored in history. Uh, so I didn't do I didn't take a whole lot of financial accounting, finance. I had an interest in math, but it wasn't really business related coursework. And so I felt that I needed that education and that foot in the door to help me get to that next step. And so I applied to Columbia. I was fortunate enough to get in. And I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to move to investment banking, but I knew I wanted to get into finance, get into something numbers related, get into something Wall Street related where I could get that real training. It wasn't really until I got to school where, you know, you're inundated with all kinds of recruiting tools, seminars, second years who can educate you. And it was really what that first month in business school when I fine-tuned my career sites, if you will, onto investment banking. And so I went through the process of recruiting investment banking, which in 2001, 2002, wasn't very easy given the dot-com bubble had just burst and, and it wasn't the best recruiting environment for any type of, of career, I don't, I don't think. But it was a challenging time. 
Uh, I was fortunate enough to get a summer internship offer at Bank of America. This is pre the acquisition of Merrill Lynch. So it was Bank of America, which is a relatively newer investment bank at the time. I spent my summer there in 2002. I was fortunate enough to receive a full-time offer. I went back after graduation in 2003. As you said in the introduction, I spent 12 years there. Uh, Midway through that 12 years is when we acquired Merrill Lynch. So roughly half of my 12 years at B of A was Bank of America, and the second half was Bank of America Merrill Lynch. How important is the MBA or the graduate degree, and what advice would you give to people that might be listening that have aspirations for a career on Wall Street but are not sure how to break in? It's a great question, and I, I think it just depends. You know, there's very successful people on Wall Street who went to business school, and there are very successful people on Wall Street who didn't go to business school or any type of grad school, and there's people, very successful people who were lawyers or had some other type of background. So I think it really depends. But I, I agree with you that uh, uh, right or wrong, um, kids are forced at an early age or influenced at an early age to, to pick a career, pick a major, uh, and pick a, pick a, a profession. And what I, what I try to encourage folks when I'm talking to those in undergrad, for example, is who are telling me they want to go to law school or business school or whatever it might be. And for those who say they want to do it right after graduation, I say you should maybe work for a year or two. You might change your mind and find that you maybe work in that area and you might make a pivot. Similarly, uh, you might find that you don't need that business school education or that leapfrog to get into or that entry into a certain type of career. I think it depends. For me specifically, uh, working in the job that I was working, uh, the education that I had, it would have been difficult for me to transition to New York to a Wall Street job. And even if I had, I might not have been successful had I not had the financial training and education that I had at Columbia. So I, I wholeheartedly, for those that think it'd be helpful for their career and think it'd be necessary to make that, that move, recommend business school. But I also uh, wholeheartedly feel that for those, um, it's very possible to have a very successful career in investment banking coming right out of undergrad or making some type of transition. So there's no specific path to get there and be successful there. Uh, it just depends. What I would say is don't, don't uh, have a specific plan laid out that you think you got to follow going into college going into business school, somewhere in between. When we do interviews, when we're, tra when we're trained to do our business school interviews, we are told to have a, have a story of why we went to business school, that investment banking was our interest uh, uh, the whole time. And that's not really true for most people. It wasn't true for me. I knew I wanted to get into, into a Wall Street job and into, into something very quantitative. I didn't know it was investment banking until, like I said, my first month in business school. And if I had been that open about it in my Wall Street interviews, I don't know that I would have had the same success that I had with that story laid out that I've been told and others have been told to have. So put the Bank of America experience on the timeline for us. You're there for 12 years, but if you had to you know, give the bullet points of what you started doing and you know, what your last role there was, you know, tell us about that, please. Sure. Well, first of all, I had a great 12 years at Bank of America slash Bank of America Merrill Lynch. After three years as a generalist associate, I was, I was promoted to a vice president. And as a vice president, I focused solely uh, on medical devices, the medical device team there. 
After three years as a vice president, I was promoted to a director, again, in the medical device team. And my responsibilities started to transition from execution and project management, which were my main roles as a vice president, to more of client relationship and client building. I was ultimately promoted to a managing director, again, in the medical device team, where I had more responsibility of client relationship, client building, driving revenue for the firm. So you're getting a promotion every two to three years. What is the difference when you get from, say, vice president to director to managing director? How does the role change? You mentioned client relationships, but on a day-to-day basis, how different is it? Very different if you compare the vice president to managing director roles. It's less so when you compare the vice president and director roles, because as a director, you're doing a lot of what's expected of you is building relationships as well as a lot of your VP responsibilities or vice president responsibilities. As a vice president, you are blending your role as an associate as well as your role as a vice president. So it's a challenging work environment. There's a lot of work to go around. And so you have to wear several different different hats, not just your the title that uh, is in your auto signature at any particular time. So the, the transition is is exactly that from from processing, executing transactions, processing client pitch materials, to managing those client pitches or deal execution, to driving revenue and being the sole person uh, responsible for a particular client relationship in the organization. And while you have that relationship and while you're driving revenue, you're also responsible for advising, executing, being the point person on a particular transaction, whether it be an M&A transaction or a capital markets transaction. Neil, do you remember the first client that you brought into the bank and that it was your medical device deal? You sourced it, built the relationship, and solid executed? I think so. If I think back to that time at Bank of America, there's two or three that I can think of that you could argue were my, one of which was my first. It's just a matter of which one actually hit the market first or price first. But I, I feel pretty comfortable of which, ironically, they're all three different transactions. One was a capital markets uh, high-yield underwriting. One was an uh, equity follow-on underwriting. One was a convertible bond underwriting. But it was one of those three, or maybe all three, that may have happened on the similar timelines that were my, my first transactions that I had a lead role. And we're not ultimately individually. There's a team effort across everything we do, particularly when it's a capital markets transaction when you're partnering with your colleagues across the firm, but I would point to one of those three transactions. If you're doing a capital markets transaction, what does that mean? So a a capital markets transaction typically would be a public equity type deal or a publicly traded debt security type transaction where there's a basically a capital market for it. So if you think about the stock market as a equity capital market, an equity underwriting transaction for an existing public company would be to help them raise additional equity capital by issuing additional equity securities or for a private company that is interested in taking the company or interested in an initial public offering by issuing equity securities for the first time to the public. And at Bank of America and Merrill Lynch, in your time there, what percentage of the deals would you say were capital markets versus mergers and acquisitions? So I'd say there was probably more time involved in M&A or mergers and acquisitions than there was in the capital markets transactions because M&A is just a more time-consuming product versus an individual capital markets transaction. So while 
if you look at the number of announced transactions, uh, you might see it, it might not necessarily tell the, the correct story because the amount of time involved in an M&A process, an M&A uh, relationship, assignment, whatever it might be. So I'd, I'd, I'd probably tilt the scales more heavily toward M&A versus any, particular, any one particular capital markets transaction. With the breadth of your role and all the different responsibilities on the capital markets, M&A, is there a typical deal that just for you personally is most exciting and that you enjoy the most? I don't know that there's any one particular transaction that I would call out. I'd say they're all uniquely different. So what I enjoy is that I am working with senior leadership at my client organizations. I am working with my team, my colleagues, my peers, folks who I consider some of the smartest, best at what we do, and delivering to our client a satisfactory outcome. And each of them is different. In each, I'm still learning as we go along because each one is different. And to have a happy client, whether they've bought a business, whether they've sold a business, whether they've sold their own business, whether they've issued or raised capital in some form or fashion, that's very satisfying. They've all been satisfying in one form or another. So it's hard to call it any one particular transaction. So with your experience representing clients, whether they're doing a capital markets transaction or maybe they want to buy another firm or they're going to sell their own company, if you were to strip down the psychology of the buyer to the base level, what are the feelings and motivations driving a buyer's interest in acquiring another business? So first, uh, the buyer has to feel good about their own business and feel confident enough to go out and invest externally. If you look at the stock market, for example, stock prices change and can be volatile and they've been volatile recently. So as a public company, if you're looking to go out and make an acquisition, your own stock price will have an influence in how confident you are in going out and doing things externally and how you think it might be received from the investor community and how supportive your board would be to go out and do something versus a stock price that you might feel is not at the appropriate level. So I think there are various things that influence uh, the client and their motivation for going out first and foremost to pursue an acquisition. That might depend on the size, obviously, and, and how, how uh, material it is to that particular company. And then, and then beyond that, there are a number of things that, that a client will look at, the strategic rationale for sure, and the financial impact. What does it mean for, our, as a public company, our, our EPS? What does it mean for our revenue growth? What does it mean for our gross margins? What's the return on invested capital? And uh, what's the integration risk? And what does it do for my ability to go out and pursue future M&A? And what does it do for my balance sheet in terms of just leverage if I'm using cash or debt or whatever it might be? So there are a number of factors that will, that will influence uh, the M&A criteria, if you will, of a potential acquirer. But those are some of the things that have to check the box in order for an acquisition to, to make sense. And so if you take those very objective facts, so a company feels confident, they're considering their board, earnings per share, how material, strategic fit, objectively, those all make sense. But is the state of being that they feel good and they're feeling aggressive or is it their, how often is it fear and they're reacting to a volatile, uncertain marketplace? I guess the buyers and the sellers that you worked with, how often is confidence and excitement about the path ahead driving the action versus fear around uncertainty and volatility in the market? It's usually the former. A good disciplined acquirers do the right things for their business because they feel like it's the right thing for their business, not 
as a reaction to any particular volatility impact their business that's short-term in nature. And good disciplined acquirers try to take emotion out of the process. And good disciplined acquirers will know when to back off a particular transaction and when to really lean into a particular transaction. It's the reactionary decisions that will not benefit any particular organization, acquirer or seller. How do you and, and now Guggenheim view the consolidation at the strategic level in Mentech? Is that something that you think will continue and how has it changed the, the way you operate? I'll give you my, my opinion is, is that the consolidation in M&A will always be an important part of the medical device sector. And there's only so much innovation companies can do on their own. There's only so much pipeline they can develop on their own. There's only so much growth they can drive on their own. So when you think of uses of cash, obviously organic investment, return of capital to shareholders, whether it's share purchases and or dividends, and M&A. Those will always be priorities in some form or fashion for many of the companies in our sector. There are some companies that M&A is just, is just impractical given their size, balance sheet constraints, just or maybe just uh, sector performance within medical devices. But by and large, M&A uh, is here to stay. When I look at other regulated industries, like for instance, finance, and finance has had several cycles of consolidation and then deconsolidation. Do you have a view of that that could happen in MedTech where some of these big mega mergers that have happened over the last five years that suddenly shareholders think that they can unlock value by breaking them apart like we've seen in banking? Absolutely. We've seen some of that. We will continue to see what we call portfolio management as some of the larger, more diversified companies are always evaluating their portfolio and figuring out where the priorities are what parts of their business might be better under different ownership, public, private, whatever it might be. And so when you, when you see some of these large scale consolidations take place, you tend to see some of that happen more often where following integration or even to close a transaction in some cases, if it's required, you'll see a divestiture of some size. The challenge is, is that a lot of times valuation, tax implications, other rationale separate challenges to separate might impact companies from actually moving forward with the potential divestiture but portfolio management is a, is a constant exercise companies and boards go through your last couple of years of bank of america merrill lynch what were the size of the deals you were doing i know i don't want to put you in a weird spot anything you can't disclose but how big did that practice get before you decided to go to guggenheim well, on the medical device side, I mean, the firm, the healthcare group at, at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, was one of the leading groups on the street. And so across the firm, across the healthcare team, we were involved in some of the largest transactions, whether it was M&A or whether it was financing side. On the device side, we were, I think, one of the leading device teams on Wall Street at the time. So we were involved in, in some of the more notable M&A transactions and, and capital markets transactions whether it been on the M&A side, buy side, sell side, or on the, on the capital markets side as one of the lead, if not the lead underwriters. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize when you think of these really large companies, like the biggest healthcare companies, that when they target and acquire a business, I mean, they have these big teams, they have corporate development groups that they also hire an advisor. And maybe you could explain why do these big companies that are so well staffed need an advisor? And what's the role that an investment bank and on the M&A side, what's the role that you play in those transactions? Well, I think anytime a CEO, a board, a management team is looking to, let's just take buy a business, 
for example, sometimes those discussions can be bilateral. Sometimes they can be as part of a broader sale process. And I think CEOs, management teams, boards, while they have very capable business development teams and efforts for some transactions, they feel like they might benefit from an advisor who can help them either win that process, negotiate the best price with a bilateral discussion, and ultimately get to a sign and announce of a transaction. It's not always about price. And we on the advisory side work hand in hand with our clients. We work hand in hand with their legal teams to drive the best potential outcome for our clients. So some of the larger organizations won't always use advisors for some of the smaller M&A that they do, but for some of the larger things where they, and more competitive things, they feel like an advisor, uh, they will benefit from the advice of folks who are involved in this type of work day in and day out. How did you make the decision to join Guggenheim and how has it been? So Jeff, after a very rewarding 12 years at, at Bank of America, an opportunity came up to work with some of my colleagues at B of A, as well as one of our, at the time, competitors, and form a team of our own at a firm called Guggenheim Securities, which is the investment banking and capital markets arm of a firm called Guggenheim Partners, which is a more diversified financial services firm. And while I had envisioned spending my entire career at Bank of America, the opportunity as it presented itself to work with those folks to build a unique team and a, and a unique model at a firm like Guggenheim Securities, where we could offer our, our clients a broad range of advisory and capital markets services, it seemed like a, an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So I made that transition in early 2015, and I had a three-month non-compete, what we call garden leaves on Wall Street. So I started Guggenheim Securities, I believe it was around June 1st, and it's been just over five years. And to answer your question, it's been terrific. It's been one of the best career moves I've made. Well, that's great, Neil. Thanks, and I'm glad to hear you're liking Guggenheim. It was really helpful to hear all about how the healthcare investment banking business works. A lot of our audience are healthcare entrepreneurs. So if you think of the person that has started a business, they're gaining some traction, they've raised capital, they seem to have product market fit. At what point do you and your colleagues at Guggenheim want to engage with entrepreneurs to start building that relationship? What's too early and what's about the right time? It's never too early for us. We like to meet new companies early on. We like to develop relationships with companies. We like to track companies. And at some point, if a company is going to transact, it's helpful to have that relationship and have that knowledge base before or, or leading up to a potential mandate. You're focused primarily on medical device, but with things like digital therapeutics, drug device combos, is there a group within Guggenheim that if an entrepreneur has something that might not fit the traditional med tech business that, that you can work with? Absolutely. It's one of the many factors that, that was influential in my decision to, to join the firm. We have a very large, established, successful healthcare effort across all the various therapeutic categories, and we all partner very well to deliver the firm to our clients. If a client that doesn't necessarily fit one of our teams specifically, we partner well. On the startup side, what is the sweet spot in terms of revenue, traction in the marketplace, clinical? What is the typical sweet spot for the key metrics? That's tough to answer. You know, we, we work with companies and have transacted with companies that were even pre-regulatory approval all the way up to some of the largest companies in our sector. So what's, what's more important to us than stage of commercial development or regulatory approval is the quality of the company, which can be a little bit harder to judge if it's an earlier stage company. Quality of the company, quality of the management teams, quality of the boards and investors versus some necessary 
financial metric to gauge whether or not it's a company worth spending time with. And so for people that are listening, it's great that Guggenheim and you and your team want to engage and, and get to know people early. Do you have a process? Is there an associate or somebody or a way to, to reach the firm so that people can, if they're listening to this interview, they think they have a great product or company that could need advisory services. What's the best way for folks to contact Guggenheim? Well, we actually, uh, we, we receive a number of inbounds through the Guggenheim Securities website where there's a link for potential clients. Uh, I'd, I'd say most often uh, we are contacted directly. If someone has an interest in the medical device sector and wants to speak with me or another member of our team, uh, we are contacted by email through introductions of mutual folks that we know fairly regularly. All right, let's wrap up by going to the vault. And let's start, Neil, with in the past year, what book, TV show, movie could be a song that you experienced and it influenced your perspective on life and you think about regularly? So I'm going to go with, uh, with artwork, a uh, piece of art. And it's actually a piece of art that I, uh, with my girlfriend and daughter, put together. It's a, it's a painting that I think it was sometime last summer or last fall, where just on a whim, we were cleaning up my daughter's room found a, I think it was a gift at some point, a canvas and a paint set. And it was a weekend and the three of us unplanned, unscripted together, started painting this canvas and put together a surprisingly nice piece of art uh, that to this day I have hung on the near the entrance of my front door. So every time I leave or come in, I see it and I'm reminded of that time we spent together. And when you think about how, how busy our lives can be and how crazy work and juggling everything can be and having to sometimes having to think about planning our free time or planning uh, vacations or whatever it might be, I'm taken back to that time where the three of us had a nice, like I said, unplanned, unscripted time and, uh, and a nice memory to show for it. All right, next question. Other than your parents, who is someone that saw your potential early? They took an interest in your development and have had a really important influence on your career and life. So I'm going to go with one of my colleagues on this one, and he probably doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't know that I'm referencing him on this, but his, his name is Joe Coles. He is a medical device banker. He is someone I've worked with almost my entire career. He came over to Bank of America in 2004 from Lehman Brothers at the time, probably three or four months after I had started as a senior banker. And I started, I, I was coincidentally staffed on something with him and we quickly developed a, a relationship and, and worked on a number of things with him along the way. Uh, and he was one of the big reasons why I chose the medical device sector uh, when I was promoted to a vice president and has been someone who's been instrumental in my development as a banker and in my career. You know, I almost left, there was one time I almost left Bank of America, I think I was a, a, as an associate. And it was through some conversations with him and as well as some other conversations that he had facilitated that I decided to stay. It was, uh, a, you know, he has been very instrumental in my career at Guggenheim and uh, someone that uh, I think is well-respected in our sector in medical device investment banking is considered one of the, I'd say, leaders in our space and what we do. And someone that, like I said, has taken a, a mentor uh, role in my career, my professional development. All right, so the next question in your professional life, what is one online tool that you use almost every day and you can't imagine doing your work at Guggenheim without? 
Well, email, of course, <laughs> without, <laughs> without that, there's no communication. But I, I, I'd say uh, I, um, I, I, I tend to look at tickers fairly common. So a real-time uh, screen of tickers that I have in my office and I have on my, on my phone as well, not because I'm looking at my portfolio necessarily, but as I said earlier, clients uh, are often influenced by their stock prices, how well or not well they're doing. And in particular transactions, when there's stock involved, it, the stock prices of both the acquirer and the target are heavily influenced by the stock prices in the market in general. So I, I tend to look at a, a screen of real-time tickers fairly consistently throughout the day. And there's also a, an information service that I, that I look at uh, that I use that's uh, called Street Account, where with real-time, with real-time news I, that is emailed to me in my sector, in healthcare, and just globally, it's a good way to, to be uh, up to speed on all types of corporate news and market news-related items. I have to ask, on your phone, do you use the Gmail app, the iPhone app for email? Which email app on your phone? So for work, on our, on our phones, our personal phones, for security purposes, we use an app. It's called BlackBerry Work. For your ticker and real-time financial data, which app do you use there? CNBC. It's a real-time um, where there's, there's news, there's the ticker list, my, my watch list, if you will. And I can quickly open up a particular ticker, uh, see news, see trading activity, and see other basic financial statistics for a particular company. All right, Neil, last question at Guggenheim Securities. What is your biggest unmet need? So I'm going to give you two on that one. One is our business is very high touch and it's very personal. So while we're all adjusting to doing things remotely and virtually, a vaccine is going to help us get back on the road, see our clients see them face to face, meet new clients, which, which is, I think, a little bit more challenging to do virtually than it is in person, and ultimately and entertain as well, which is, is a, a big part of our client relationship and development process. But beyond the current environment that we're in, we meet so many companies that are focused on improving patient outcomes, improving the way we treat certain disease states, and not all of them survive for whether it be funding purposes, the regulatory pathway challenges, reimbursement challenges. Not all of them should survive because not all of them will be successful. But there are many that, at least from my lens, I think can be successful in delivering a better experience and outcome for certain patients. And if there is a way for some of those companies to succeed, I think that benefits all of us. It benefits the healthcare system. It benefits our business because we'd like to work with those differentiated, innovative companies. All right, folks. Well, you heard it here. Inspired by original Oberoi family artwork, Joe Cole's big influence on your career and has been a mentor and colleague. Couldn't live without email, specifically BlackBerry work and real-time ticker data from CNBC. Biggest unmet need, aside from a vaccine, would be access to capital, regulatory, and reimbursement services for the companies that are trying to grow and ultimately transact. Well, Neil, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you being on Unmet Need. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff.